0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back in the Word with you after being gone last week. Um, I always is a joy to my soul to know that Sam is preaching. Well, either Sam or Ben or Paul preaching while I'm away and doing a great job. And I heard good things. So, But I'm looking forward to getting back into the Gospel of John with you this morning. And So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Our text this morning is going to be Chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, so we'll finish this chapter this morning, and let's just begin by reading it together. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. This is the word of the Lord. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, So that they might arrest him. Amen. That's a reading of God's word. Perhaps two most uh, the two most fundamental sins of fallen human beings are pride and selfishness. As a result of the fall, man's heart was turned downward and inward. From worship of God to pride, and from love of others to selfishness. And fallen man's bent toward pride and selfishness emerges in all kinds of ugly ways in our lives as human beings. One way we see them emerge is how people respond when bad things happen, such as war and oppression, or Famine and plague or natural disasters, personal trials. Fallen people tend to blame God. They say it was wrong for him to let that happen. They forget or they don't know that all such evils are ultimately the result of the first man's sin and the resulting judgment of the curse. They question his goodness and his wisdom. They assume that since they can't see any good and wise reason to let these bad things happen, therefore there cannot possibly be one. Man in his fallen condition often assumes that his temporal happiness as he defines it should be God's ultimate goal. They assume that their evaluations and judgments are what matter most, and God must explain himself to them, his fallen creatures. It's all a manifestation of pride and selfishness of fallen humanity. In the Bible, God himself, who speaks to us in the Bible, it is his word, he confronts and he contradicts human pride and selfishness. The Bible teaches that fallen humanity is condemned and under God's judgment. It says that God doesn't owe us anything, except if he were to give us justice, it would be temporal judgments in this life and eternal Judgment at the end. It says that while he is merciful and he is kind to fallen sinners like us, God's purposes don't ultimately center on our own personal happiness as we define it, but upon ultimately his glory, which is our good. And while he sympathizes with us, in our experiences of evil and suffering in this fallen and cursed world, God declares in the Bible that he has a wise and good purpose for letting all these things happen that we won't necessarily understand. And when it comes to these purposes, God doesn't have to explain himself to us. Rather, he invites us he demands that we trust in Him. To help us to do that, God does, in the scriptures, explain at times His good and wise purposes in allowing, even planning, certain bad things to happen. He gives us these windows into how it can work, and that is to help us to learn to trust him in all the affairs of life. Our text, I think, is one example of this. John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Now, I want you to remember the context here. If we were to go all the way back to John chapter 5, Jesus, you remember in that chapter, healed a lame man, a man who'd been lame for 40 years, laying next to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And he intentionally did it on a Sabbath day. And he told the man to pick up his mat and walk. And when the Pharisees protested that he was violating the Sabbath, he justified his act by claiming that he was the ultimate son of God, who worked every day just like God his father did. So John chapter 5 verse 18 tells us how the Jews responded to that. This was why they were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The last two times, from that point on, the last two times that he went to Jerusalem, it ended with the Jews picking up stones to stone him on the spot for blasphemy. Chapter 8, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, John chapter 8, verses 58 through 59 says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 10. When Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of dedication. John chapter 10 verse 30. Tells us that Jesus said to the Jews, I and the father are one. And in verse 31, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then verse 33, they said, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus, again, had left the land of Israel and gone across the Jordan River to the place where years back, John the Baptist had baptized. Now in chapter 11, you remember from the last time we were in this chapter that Jesus told his disciples that they were going to go to the little village of Bethany, which was just two miles away from Jerusalem. And he was going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. They were dismayed. They said in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? When he insisted that they were going, it says in verse 16, Thomas, called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And Jesus did go to Bethany. And many Jews from Jerusalem were there. They were there to join these sisters, Mary and Martha, to mourn the death of their brother. Apparently they were a prominent family. So when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all these other Jews from The surrounding area and from Jerusalem were there to see it happen. And as you can imagine, once again, Jesus is causing quite a stir among the Jews in and around Jerusalem. And this began to bring the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders to a head. And that brings us to our text. Verses 45 through 46 of our text tell us how those Jews from Jerusalem responded when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, Here again, we see a divided response. Some of the Jews who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead or perhaps heard of it as words spread about what had happened, they responded by believing in him. That is, believing that he was the Messiah come from God. But others went and reported what he had done to the Pharisees. And I think the contrast there indicates that they did so out of more malicious motives, Like spies going to give info about Jesus to his enemies to help them in their ongoing plot to catch and kill him. But what had they reported to the Pharisees? They told them how Jesus had raised this well-known Jewish man from the dead after he had been in the tomb for four days. And he did it in front of a large crowd of Jews from around Jerusalem. I mean, it was just astounding what they must have reported to the Jews. It was an undeniable, incredible miracle. And the implications of it were huge. So, we're told in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, the council, it's a Greek word which could be transliterated as Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin just means the Jewish ruling council. It was made up of 70 members plus one, plus the high priest. The majority of the members of the Sanhedrin were priests uh, from the party of the Pharisees, most of them, or sorry, the Sadducees. It was presided over by the high priest himself. A minority of the Sanhedrin's members were members of the party of the Pharisees. The rest were leading men in Israel, elders, aristocrats, you might say, Uh, people like Joseph of Arimathea, who ended up burying Jesus. And as D.A. Carson put it, under Roman authority, the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, controlled all Jewish internal affairs. The critical matter under discussion at this meeting of the Sanhedrin is laid out there in verses 47 through 48. We don't know who said it, but someone raised the matter. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, first you see that the members of the Sanhedrin acknowledge that Jesus was performing many signs, many miracles. They even call them signs. They had just heard eyewitness reports of the latest miracle from their spies. He had resurrected a well-known Jewish man after he had been dead and buried for four days and a large crowd of Jews from the region, from Jerusalem, had seen the man walk out of the tomb still wrapped in the grave clothes right in front of their eyes. Of course, members of the party of the Pharisees had seen other miracles of Jesus as well. There were probably even members of this council who had seen one or more of Jesus' miracles with their own eyes. So they weren't denying that Jesus' miracles had happened. Indeed, we know that they didn't really even try at the end of the day. By the way, we ought to just stop there for a moment and take note of this. This is a striking piece of historical evidence about Jesus. According to the best historical sources we have concerning Jesus' life, the New Testament documents, not even his enemies denied that he performed miracles. Even if they ended up attributing those miracles to evil spirits, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They still acknowledge that Jesus was going around doing miraculous things. Indeed, it's interesting that we actually see the same thing in other ancient documents from around the same time period, which are outside the Bible. For instance, the Jewish historian of the first century, Josephus, said that Jesus was a doer of startling deeds, depending on how you translate it. The Babylonian Talmud, which was written between AD 70 and AD 200, said that Jesus practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Even Kelsis, the 2nd century Greek philosopher who was an ardent opponent of Christianity, he wrote that Jesus had, quote, acquired some miraculous powers. In other words, the historical evidence indicates that not just Jesus' disciples, but even his enemies, both in his days and for decades afterwards, acknowledged that he had done during his life many miraculous things. So before you reject the New Testament record of his life as pure mythology because of all of the miracles of Jesus, you have to reckon with that fact. And if Jesus performed miraculous works that even his enemies couldn't deny, well then perhaps you should reconsider what exactly he claimed about himself according to the new testament record of his life perhaps you should consider believing in him as many of the jews who saw him raise lazarus from the dead ended up doing now of course the jews who had gathered for this special session of the sanhedrin did not believe in him even though they had seen these signs they had they knew that he had performed miracles Jesus, you see, didn't affirm their traditions. And he had even condemned them as hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, blind guides. They hated Jesus. They were envious of his influence among the people. So instead of recognizing that Jesus had supernatural power that was like a sign that pointed to the fact that he truly was from God, that he truly was the Christ, the Son of God, as he claimed, they rejected him. They rejected him as a dangerous, false teacher. They attributed his miracles to the devil. The question, therefore, at this meeting of the Sanhedrin was not, well, should we reconsider whether Jesus might be telling the truth about himself in light of this latest fantastic miracle? It was simply this. How can we keep the populace from believing in him en masse in light of the things he's doing? As they put it in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. By the way, this is one of many indications in the New Testament that faith in Jesus is not just intellectual, it's moral. Those that think that they would believe in Jesus if provided with enough evidence are just kidding themselves. The Jewish leaders in his day, smart, educated men, religious men, refused to believe in him despite having undeniable proof of his many astounding miracles. They didn't even deny it. They accepted the irrational idea that Jesus performed miracles by the power of Satan rather than believe that he was truly the Christ, the Son of God, as he claimed. No amount of evidence was going to convince these Jewish leaders because their hearts were morally opposed to him. They hated him. They were jealous of him. And so they would never believe in him. Not unless the Lord changed their hearts by the power of his spirit, which, by the way, he did do with one prominent Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul. So, unbeliever, don't fool yourself into thinking That your skepticism about Jesus is purely a result of rational analysis. It isn't. Your heart is corrupted by sin. And that's why you're resistant to the truth and the righteousness of God. As Jesus told that Pharisee Nicodemus when he came to him at night. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need God to take out your heart of stone and give you spiritual life in your soul in order to accept the abundant evidence that there really is about Jesus and believe in him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And perhaps, perhaps he will do that for you today even as you're hearing this message. But why was this Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin? Why were they worried about the Jewish populace believing that Jesus was the Messiah as a result of his miracles? We see the answer in verse 48. It says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Most people, commentators, believe that our place is a reference to the temple. This statement here reflected a common misconception about the Messiah that was held by most Jews in that day. They believed through an understandable but misguided interpretation of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be an heir of David who would become king of Israel, defeat all their enemies in that day, the Romans, reestablish the Davidic kingdom, something like it was in David's day, over Israel, and then extend that kingdom to the ends of the earth. So the ruling council reasoned that if the Jewish populace believed that Jesus was that Messiah, it would lead them to try and make him king of Israel. Basically, start a revolution. And this would lead to the Romans sending their legions to put down the rebellion, sack Jerusalem, tear down their place, the temple, kill all the leaders, that's them, and destroy the nation as a whole. And based on that way, a mistaken way, of understanding the Messiah and his work, their fear made some sense, and you can see why they felt like they needed to do something about it. In their mind, it was a matter of saving the nation. Although, no doubt, preserving their own lives and positions of influence were also foremost in their minds. At this point, Caiaphas, who was, it says, the high priest, the one who presided over the Sanhedrin, he stepped in and he suggested a course of action. Now, before we look at it, let me just say this. If the Pharisees, were the party of religious zeal and devotion. The Sadducees were, while not unreligious, they were more like the party of political influence. They were made up largely of priests, and at the top of the party was the family of the high priest. The high priesthood was the highest political office in the land, and Caiaphas had married into the high priestly family. He was the son-in-law of the former high priest, Annas. And after taking over the office of high priest from Annas in AD 18, Caiaphas would hold that office for a very long time, for 18 years. It's interesting to note, by the way, just as an aside, that the first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, Josephus, he says that, that Caiaphas' name would more properly have been Joseph Ben Caiaphas, Joseph son of Caiaphas. Very interesting that in 1990, uh, archaeological work in the city around the city of Jerusalem uncovered a grave, and inside the grave was a very ornate ossuary. An ossuary is a, a bone box, um, basically a box containing the bones of a deceased person. And it was dated from that very period. And it was discovered just outside of Jerusalem, and on that bone box was the name Joseph ben Caiaphas. And the ornate nature of the box indicates that this probably was the Caiaphas of the New Testament. Why does stuff like that matter? Because it just reminds us, this is one of many indications, that these stories that we're reading about in the New Testament are rooted in real historical events. These things we're reading about in this text really did happen. Here, John tells us that Caiaphas held the office of high priesthood that year, that fateful year of Jesus' death. In fact, that he was instrumental in bringing about the death of Jesus. As it says in verses 49 and 50, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You see, the people had said, What should we do? Or perhaps, what are we doing? What we're doing to try to handle this Jesus problem isn't working. What shall we do? And Caiaphas says, Come on. It's clear what we need to do. It's better that he die than that the whole nation is destroyed. If they let Jesus live, the nation would be destroyed by the Romans. So they need to put Jesus to death in order to save the nation. It was a messy business, but it had to be done, in other words. It was better that one man die and that the whole nation be destroyed. From a merely human point of view, you know, you've seen enough movies about political intrigue that, you know, this is probably nothing quite unusual about that type of thing that would happen in these situations, it's exactly the kind of crass political calculation you'd expect from a corrupt government official and body. But John went on to tell us in verses 51 and 52 that there was more going on here than Caiaphas' words appear on the surface. John tells us that Caiaphas, quote, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That is a very striking affirmation of what theologians call the providence of God. The providence of God refers to his ongoing activity as God to preserve and to govern his creation. It includes his activity to maintain the existence of all of his creatures. You remember Paul said, in him we live and move and have our very being. It's also his activity to direct every event and action which takes place in his creation and by his creatures to bring about his good and wise purposes for it. Paul says, Ephesians 1 11, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, everything which occurs in the universe, from the random way a dice lands, Proverb says, to the deliberate decision of a ruler like Caiaphas, are being ordered by a sovereign God to fulfill his ultimate purposes for the universe. Now, of course, As D.A. Carson puts it, quote, This does not mean that God used Caiaphas as if he were a puppet, a creature like Balaam's donkey, a mere mouthpiece. Caiaphas spoke his considered if callous opinion, but when Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same things, end quote. I think that says it well. So Caiaphas proposed a wicked scheme to murder Jesus according to his own evil reasoning and for his own sinister purposes. But God had planned that he would say that exact thing at that exact moment to bring about that the high priest in that day would predict the death of Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. As John put it, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And notice the significance of this unintentional prophecy is deepened when John adds his own comment in verse 52 that Jesus would die not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now that little phrase, the children of God who are scattered abroad, it could refer to the Jews living outside of Israel among the nations, what you might call the diaspora Jews. But most commentators believe that in the context of John's gospel, this is another clear reference to those who would believe in Jesus from among the Gentile peoples as well. The last chapter, Jesus had said in John ten sixteen, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of the fold of Israel, Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Go back to verse 52 of our text. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, Caiaphas' prophecy predicted the death of Jesus on behalf of, as a sacrifice to save, first, a remnant of believing Jews, the nation, but also a remnant of believing Gentiles as well, the children of God scattered abroad, who together would become one people, one new covenant people of God. One flock under one shepherd, one family of God, children together of God the Father, born, as he said in John chapter 1, not of flesh and blood, but of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we ought to just step back from this for a second and sit in awe of the providence of God as we read these verses. To think that God orders all the events of history, even the free decisions and acts of men, to do both good and evil by his sovereign power and authority as God so that they will all accomplish his good and wise purposes for the world. It boggles the mind to see displayed here in our text but it shouldn't surprise us, should it? We see it elsewhere in Scripture. We see it all over Scripture. Did Joseph not say to his brothers about their evil decision and act to sell him into slavery? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Does not First Kings 12 verse 15 say of King Rehoboam's decision to follow the foolish advice of his younger advisors leading to the rupture of the nation into the northern and southern kingdom, say, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Did not the apostle peter say to the jews on the day of pentecost in acts 2:23 this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men and yet though god ordained these evil acts to occur for his good purposes He did not commit them, nor was he responsible for them. Rather, the people who did the evil, like Caiaphas, were responsible, and he would judge them for it. I understand it is difficult. It's impossible for us to fully comprehend how this divine sovereignty and human responsibility can be compatible in this way, But the scripture clearly teaches it again and again. So we believe it and indeed it comforts our soul to know that even the evil actions of men along with every other harmful thing which happens in this cursed world and all of the suffering it results in is not out of God's control but is being ordered by him to accomplish his good and wise purposes for this world. Sometimes purposes for judgment. At other times purposes for redemption. All of which resound to the display of his own glory. And brothers and sisters, these things as mysterious as even paradoxical, not contradictory. Paradoxical, they might seem to our puny little brains. They're not something to kick against, but to embrace for the comfort that they provide our souls when they are accepted and relied upon in our life. In verse 53, we see that the Sanhedrin must have agreed to follow Caiaphas' advice to kill Jesus in order to save the nation. Because if you see there, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And we see how Jesus responded to this turn of events in verse 53. There it says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. We don't know where that is today. And there he stayed with the disciples. You know, somehow, it could have been that he heard it through natural means. It could have been his supernatural knowledge. Jesus knew The council had decided to put him to death. So he withdrew to a remote town called Ephraim near the wilderness until the time for his final entrance into Jerusalem arrived. And the last section of our passage describes the tension which began to develop leading up to that event. Verses 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover. To purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let him he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So things are coming to a head. The Passover was rapidly approaching. Jerusalem was already filling up with pilgrims arriving early to go through the purification rituals that they needed in order to participate in the Passover. The city is already buzzing with discussion and speculation about Jesus. Surely a righteous man like him is not going to violate the law and just skip the feast altogether. But if he did attend... Everyone knew he would be walking right into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees who planned to arrest him and put him to death as soon as he entered the city. So you see, the stage is set for the drama that would unfold during what would be the final weeks of his life. And for that, stay tuned for part two, (laughs) the second half of the book. Today, however... Let's just close by reflecting on the unique contribution of this passage, the end of chapter 11. What is the main point that John is communicating through these verses that we have looked at? By taking us into this fateful meeting of the Sanhedrin and telling us about the deliberation and the decision that resulted from it, John was emphasizing, I think, this main point. That God was sovereignly ordering the events of history so that this Jewish plot to kill Jesus would become the very means by which God fulfilled his plan of salvation. The Jews thought they were saving the nation by killing Jesus. And you know, in a sense... They were right, but not in the way they thought. They weren't going to capture Jesus. He would give himself up into their hands. While they arranged for his death with murderous intent, he was lovingly offering himself up unto death as a sin-bearing sacrifice to save his people from their sin. They would mock Jesus as he hung on the cross saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. And yet they spoke better than they knew. Because as he hung on that cross, Jesus was refusing to save himself so that he might save others. Namely, all those whom the Father had given him, both from among the Jews and also the Gentiles. And if that was John's message in this text, what was his purpose for it? How did he want us to respond to the truth that God was sovereignly ordering the events of history so that this Jewish plot to kill Jesus would become the very means by which he fulfilled his plan of salvation? Well, first, John wants those who read this book to not reject Jesus like the Pharisees did, like the Sadducees and the chief priests did, but that they might Believe in him as the Christ, the son of God, the one who alone can save us from our sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. Friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian this morning, please recognize your frightening condition. You have been living in sin before a holy God, your creator, You've not been worshiping and and loving and obeying him as you ought to have done. But instead, you've been going astray. You've been living for yourself. You've been going your own way. And this has left you guilty and subject to God's just and holy judgment for sin. A judgment which is death. And ultimately, eternal destruction and hell. You need to be saved. And only Jesus can do it. He is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied, Jesus died to save others. He offered himself up to die on the cross as a once for all sacrifice to make full atonement for all the sins. Of his people, for all those who will repent and put their trust in him. This is the good news, the gospel revealed in the New Testament. Hear it. Respond in faith. Don't wait any longer. Don't let this day pass before you go to God in prayer, confessing your sins, asking him to save your soul from death through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And as for us believers, this passage is a wonderful opportunity to reflect with just fresh amazement upon the true glory and the wisdom of the gospel. To see how it displays the infathomable power and and wisdom of God in the way that the world thinks is folly and weakness. You know, the Jewish leaders on the Sanhedrin, they thought they were going to expose Jesus as a fraud by putting him to death. When in reality, God had ordained the death of Christ at their hands to be the means by which he saved his people from their sins. Caiaphas thought that he was laying out a plan to save the nation by killing Jesus, when in reality, his words were prophetic and truer than he realized. Jesus would die to save the nation. Just not the way that Caiaphas thought. Indeed, Caiaphas wanted to put Jesus to death because he thought he wasn't the Messiah. But God had ordained that Jesus be put to death through Caiaphas precisely because he was the Messiah whose death had been prophesied in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. Though he was the Christ, he would be crucified. Though he was the king, he would become the sacrifice. The Jews thought they needed to kill Jesus to save Israel from their enemies, the Romans. But Jesus would conquer Israel's true enemies, sin and death and the devil, by allowing himself to be killed at their hands. This is the true wisdom and the power Of God revealed in the gospel. Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1 23 through 25. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, the world won't see the wisdom in the gospel. They won't perceive its power. But we as Christians know it. We know it because it's proclaimed to us in Scripture and because we have experienced its power in our lives. And so we must not be ashamed of the gospel. Though the world will declare that it's foolish, that it's weak, we must boldly proclaim it to others as the power and wisdom of God that they too might experience its power and know its wisdom. And we can be confident that those who, like the Jewish leaders at the Sanhedrin, reject the saving wisdom and power of the crucified Christ and scorn or persecute us for believing and proclaiming it, they will end up being the ones who perish in the judgment in the end. Indeed, it's mind-boggling. It's interesting to note that the very thing the Sanhedrin hoped to prevent by putting Jesus to death, ended up happening as a judgment in part for their actions. They hoped to save Israel and the temple from being destroyed by the Romans by killing Jesus in 30 AD. Roughly 40 years later, in a twist of irony, God did bring the Romans to destroy Israel and the temple In 70 AD. And it was in part because they, in the ultimate act of treasonous evil, killed the Son of God. In our pride, in our selfishness, fallen human beings often blame God for letting bad things happen, question his witness. Wisdom question is goodness for letting these things happen. In our text, God exposes the folly, the ignorance of these kinds of human judgments by showing us his sovereignty over all the events of history, both good and bad, and how he is ordering them all to accomplish his purposes for judgment and for salvation. So that we ought to say with Paul, in Romans 11:33, oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage. It is awe-inspiring. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with awe and reverence. With a holy fear and joy, and a deeper appreciation of your plan of salvation revealed in the gospel, that we might be humbled to the dust and full of thanksgiving that you have opened our eyes to see it and that you have applied this gospel truth to our souls and brought us from judgment to life. And we pray that we would be bold to hold fast to this gospel, though it is scorned and rejected by men and proclaim it as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.